This is Generation Justice, a multiracial project that trains youth to harness the power of community through media, narrative, and critical consciousness, broadcasting from the rightful lands of the Tiwa people. Tonight on this special two-hour edition of Generation Justice, we bring you the Rodolfo Anaya Radio Tribute a celebration of poets produced by Generation Justice in partnership with the UNM English Department's Rodolfo and Patricia Anaya Lecture on the Literature of the Southwest and the KUNM Spoken Word Hour. I am Roberta Rael, the founding director of Generation Justice, and I am so delighted to be able to facilitate this evening's tribute. In partnership with the English Department of UNM, and KUNM Spoken Word Hour, I want to welcome in one of our partners, Dr. Melina Vizcaino Aleman. Welcome. Thank you so much, Roberta, and the whole Generation Justice team. I am an associate professor in the English department. I organize our annual lecture series that Mr. Anaya established in 2010. We are getting ready to celebrate our 10th annual lecture in the series. It is also the first lecture that we will be hosting in the absence of Mr. Anaya. Um, we will be hosting U.S. Poet Laureate Joy Harjo, who was um, handpicked by Mr. Anaya himself. But in, in between us, uh, Mr. Anaya and I planning the event and getting things off the ground, um, he passed away in June of 2020. So we wanted to be able to uh, do something that would honor his contributions to the English department, to the broader UNM community and the state of New Mexico um, through the medium of poetry and honoring some of and recognizing some of our local poets who knew Mr. Anaya and whose work had a, a, an impact on their own. So thank you very much for having me, everybody. Thank you so much, Dr. Vizcaino Aleman. It's been such a pleasure to work with you on this partnership. And we have amazing poets in this room with us. And we will introduce them. And then we're going to have a panel of uh, information and love that they're going to share with us, including their own poetry and the poetry of El Maestro, Rudolfo Anaya. Our first poet is Tanea Winder. She is an author, singer, songwriter, poet, motivational speaker, and educator who comes from the intertribal lineage of Southern Ute, Pyramid Lake, Paiute, Diné, and Duckwater Shoshone nations, where she is an enrolled citizen. Her heritage also includes African-American. Her published books include words like love, soul song, song language, and why storms are named after people and bullets remain nameless. In the past 10 years, she has served hundreds of indigenous youth as the director of the University of Colorado Boulder's Upward Bound program. She also co-founded Sing Our Rivers Red, Missing Murdered Indigenous Women Earring Exhibit. Welcome, Tanea. The next poet you'll hear from is Hakeem Bellamy. Hakeem served as the inaugural poet laureate for the city of Albuquerque from 2012 to 2014, and currently is the deputy director of the city's cultural services department. In 2012, he published his first collection of poetry, Swear, and it landed him the Working Class Studies Tilly Olson Award for Literature. 
with an MA in communications from the University of New Mexico, Hakeem has held adjunct faculty positions here at UNM and also at the Institute of American Indian Arts. He has participated in several national and local fellowships. Hakeem Bellamy has shared his work in at least five countries and continues to use his art to change community. Welcome, Hakeem. The next poet you'll hear from is the one and only Levi Romero, a native New Mexican who was selected as the inaugural New Mexico Poet Laureate in 2020 and the New Mexico Centennial Poet in 2012. His most recent book is the co-edited anthology, Querencia, Reflections on the New Mexico Homeland. His two collections of poetry are A Poetry of Remembrance, New and Rejected Works, and In the Gathering of Silence. Levi Romero is co-author of Sagrado, a photo poetics across Chicano homeland. He is an assistant professor in the Chicana Chicano Studies Department here at UNM. Bienvenido, Levi. Our next poet is Michelle Otero. She served as the Poet Laureate of Albuquerque from 2018 to 2020. She is the author of the essay collection, Malinche's Daughter, as well as the poetry collection, Bosque, and the forthcoming Vessels, a Memoir of Borders. Michelle, originally from Demi, New Mexico, holds a BA in history from Harvard College and an MFA in creative writing from Vermont College and is a Fulbright Fellow and a WKKF Fellow. Michelle Otero's work has appeared or is forthcoming on the Modern Love podcast, NPR's Code Switch, and in New Mexico's magazine, Shenandoah, and the Best of Brevity Anthology. Welcome, Michelle. And the final poet for this evening is none other than our own KUNM Spoken Word Hour, Damien Flores, and also partner in this wonderful tribute. Damien is an award-winning poet, performer, author, and educator, a two-time National Poet Slam champion, and a two-time College Union's Poetry Slam champion. He has published three books, Junkyard Dogs, El Cuento de Juana Endreta, and a novena of mud. He is a past presenter at TEDx Albuquerque, was twice named Poet of the Year by the New Mexico Hispano Entertainers Association, and received the Lena Todd Award for Creative Nonfiction from the University of New Mexico. Again, he is a longtime host for the Spoken Word Hour and was so gracious to share this time with us this evening. Welcome, Damien. Thank you all of you for being here this evening for this special tribute to Rodolfo Anaya, a celebration of poets. And now I want to ask each of you to just share a little bit more about yourselves with us. And we're going to start with Tanea, then we're going to go to Hakeem, Levi, Michelle, and then Damien. I would love to ask you to tell us more about your journey to become the poet and the writer that you are. Tanea, let's start with you. Yeah, that's a, a big question. So I grew up on the Southern Ute Reservation in Ignacio, Colorado, and that's where my father's from. But I'm also Pyramid Lake, Paiute, and Duckwater Shoshone, and that's the nation I'm enrolled in. That's where my maternal grandmother is from. But I split my time growing up between being on the Southern Ute Reservation in this school year and then being on the Pyramid Lake, Paiute Reservation on my grandfather's ranch with him and my grandmother um, during the summers growing up and just 
spent a lot of my time swimming in the lake there and just really being like a child of the mountains and of the desert and what it means to hold that space. I feel like that still is a big part of who I am. You know, I feel like I really do a lot of different things. It's hard for people to categorize me. I wear a lot of different hats and um, it's rare that I can be everything that I am because when I'm with academics, I might say, well, I'm an adjunct professor. When I'm with writers, I'll say I'm a writer. When I'm with musicians, I'll say I'm an artist. So I feel like a lot of that has to do with like the places that I've carried inside me as well. Like what it's like to be from the mountains, what it's like to be from the desert, what it's like to have a lake in the desert that just taught me so many life lessons that I've learned um, from nature. And I feel like all that um, influences me and who I am, who I am today, like working with youth. Um, And I feel like loss has significantly impacted who I am as an artist, just learning how to process those things. I feel like as an individual, I always see the bright side of things, the sunny side of things. Maybe that's a coping mechanism as well. But so poetry and writing is really the only place I can actually express my emotions. And I would say my authentic self, because when you're in leadership positions, people look to you for a lot of that grounding and strength. And so I'm not as vulnerable in those spaces. So um, whenever people say like, why don't you write a happy poem or a funny poem? I think um, maybe one day I can get there. But for now, it's really just the way that I process like what's going on between my inner and outer worlds. Thank you so much. And um, I really see your poetry, how it, how it is medicine and um, hearing about your journey into poetry uh, is just really delightful to, to hear and, and know about. So thank you. Hakeem, would you please share your story? Thank you, Roberta. Um, man. It's, this is this is great because um, I've been uh, ruminating a lot with my father who passed um, in 2019, um, almost a year before Mr. Naya passed, and um, just recently have been opening a box of his things, uh, ties and things that when he when he transitioned that my mom allowed us to go get out of their closet, right? She was um, she was really trying to 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 figure out the next part of her journey, but um, I, I was reminded that. But my first kind of like poetic instincts um, were really um, being shoved on stage or shoved in front of a congregation in a black church. And uh, my father was a minister. He had his own church later in life. But in the early years, he was uh, everything from a parishioner to a deacon in the black church, the Southern Baptist tradition. And that was really like like public speaking 101. It's kind of like being thrown in the pool uh, and being told to swim without a life preserver at a young age. And, um, and, but that was also where I listened. It wasn't just where you got like learned how to, to speak and storytell. Um, you also learned from hours of sitting still and listening to sermons and lectures and Sunday school, um, you know, different storytelling styles. I mean, a lot of it was the same information. Like if you've been in a church long enough, you'd like, you know, the Bible front to back, but you're like, but, but who was telling the story was very important and how they told the story made it either engaging or, you know, I'd rather be watching football on Sunday. And, uh, and I feel like that was like the beginning of me really saying, huh, there's something to this magic, right? There's something to this, the idea of oratory. And, um, and, and then fast forward, you know, through my teen years and, being part of the first generation that grew up with hip hop. Like we weren't the generation that created it, but we were the generation that kind of 
it was always a thing for as long as we were alive. And it was like, man, if you want your story told in a way, in a style that is authentic to you and who's telling it, um, then you got to do it yourself. You can't wait for someone else to do it. And, uh, and I think that that all gave me the courage to write poetry, not necessarily the aesthetic, even though the, the, the Southern Baptist fire and brimstone minister is very much a part of my style as well as hip hop music. But it, it just was like, you know, there's, there's no barrier to you getting your story out into the world. Um, and it seems like, you know, as people of color, from my particular experience, the African-American, and it seems like, you know, we can't make any mistakes. Like everything we touch is gold as far as the storytelling thing. So let's do it. Like, let's do it and not, not necessarily ask permission. And I know that um, in, in more recent years, as I've begun to publish in different things, which I thought was an industry that was exclusively closed off to people like me, people who look like me, people as young as me, people my color, um, that, that, you know, though I'm most comfortable giving my story directly to the people, <laughs> um, that it also gave me the courage and strength and kind of self-worth and value to know that the story I was telling is, a, 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 does have value. And, and, and it has value to publishers and it has value in, in academic spaces. You know, I've been fortunate enough to teach and do other things. Um, and it's like, that was like really the, the, the for me, the arrival. Um, and I, I don't even say arrival as some sort of achievement, like becoming poet laureate. I mean, like my awakening and awareness to this, to this thing I could do that was bigger than me that I could do in the world. And, 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 and it could actually benefit someone besides me too. Mm. Thank you so much, Hakeem. Really appreciate hearing that. Levi, what about you? Yeah, um, I guess for me, it kind of really started in middle school. And um, my cousin, who was really my older brother, Raymond, was a musician. He was a songwriter in the vein of Woody Guthrie and Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and those uh, folk singer songwriters from that period. And uh, it was really through uh, being around him and emulating him and trying to imitate what he was doing, which was he was penning his own songs, folk songs, protest songs. Uh, but in school, uh, where I was going to school, there wasn't anything that was taught in, in our English classes, that was poetry, but I was picking it up anyways. I was doing rhyming verses, stanzas, et cetera, I guess what you would call, what I call songwriting or songs, because the word poetry really didn't exist in my lexicon at that time. Um, and another very influential uh, part of my upbringing in terms of taking the spoken word, the oral traditions, and then putting it to the page came from the influence that I had by growing up around Tomas Atencio and Esteban Ariano from La Academia and reading their journals and their publications and how they were taking local language, the colloquialisms, the vernacular, and being able to put it on the page and sharing it with audiences and the public and, um, that to me was very, very influential because they were giving me license to do something that I didn't even know that I could do. Um, mm -hmm. And so that was very important to be able to access my own language and my own stories, you know, to be able to do that. Uh, mm -hmm. So I was kind of doing a combination of those things. 
not sharing my work with anybody. Uh, it was just something that you didn't do. And um, there was one time when I did share a poem with uh, my best friend in middle school and uh, he yanked it out of my hand and just was running around the schoolyard waving it and saying, Levi wrote a poem, Levi wrote a poem. And everybody just turned towards me and I was just shocked. Uh, that was like very traumatic for me. So I didn't share my poetry again with anybody for the longest time, even though I was secretly still writing mm -hmm. until I got to Manal. And that's when I started to share my poetry, my poems with uh, our English teacher, Mrs. Sharon Rutassel. And she was just so encouraging. And every week I would turn in like five, six poems to her and just for her, for own, her own reading and her own reactions and responses. But um, that's kind of how it started for me. And then a little bit later on, um, when I was in college as an architecture student, I decided to take a creative writing class. And Anaya was teaching in the English department uh, but I didn't want to take a class with Rudolfo Anaya because I didn't want to be molded to sound like a Chicano writer. I didn't know Rudy then, but after I got to know Rudy, that is the last thing that he would have done. So I asked my primo Tomas, who was teaching in the sociology department at that time, I said, primo, with who do you suggest that I take a creative writing class with? I don't really want to take it with Rudolfo. And he says, mira, primo take a class with Lucy Tapahanso. So I signed up for Lucy Tapahanso's class. And then oh. after that, I just took one more creative writing class after another, after another. And I met Pat Smith and uh, John Crawford, uh, you know, a whole bunch of others. I took a class with Sandra Cisneros while she was a visiting writer there one semester. Uh, I took a class with Joy Harjo also as well. Uh, and they all had very unorthodox approaches to teaching and their methodologies were non-academic, and they kind of spoiled me in that way because uh, as an instructor, as a teacher now, that's kind of uh, who shaped my teaching style too as well is that very unorthodox, sort of anti-establishment, anti-authority way of teaching and, and, and reaching out to, to students, you know? So that's kind of sort of been my trajectory. Wow, um, beautiful, powerful, amazing. Thank you so much, Levi, for sharing that history. I'd like to bring in Michelle. Um, I, I always really liked to write. Um, so I, I had a, a sixth grade teacher who did a creative writing unit where she would, um, we brought in our spiral notebooks and she would do a squiggle or like half part of a drawing on one page. And then <clears throat> we would complete the drawing and write a poem or um, a story about it. And that was my favorite time of the week when we would get to read um, read our work in, in front of others. So I think I've always liked an audience too, <laughs> just the experience of, of having, <clears throat> um, having other people complete the story for you. Right, let me, let me see how this lands or let me read it and see how it's received. Um, and, you know, so I always had, an English teacher, somebody who um, who encouraged that um, in me through middle through junior high and high school. We had junior high when I was growing up, um, and then um, in college, I I um, you know I, I went to Harvard and it was really competitive, and I was there from Deming, and um, and there's this there was this sense that I had to kind of make the most of that and 
um, it just didn't occur to me that I that I could be a writer um, because nobody nobody I was reading kind of looked or sounded like I did or like the people I cared about. Um, so that was really four years of of um, reading a lot that I was required to read, kind of finding these little gems along the way. So somebody assigned the autobiography of Malcolm X and Beloved. And um, I took this course, I think my junior year called U.S. History and Fiction and Fact. And that's where I, I was first exposed to creative nonfiction, which was my doorway into writing. Um, and I remember for my final paper, I turned in like a, a, a short story and somebody wrote in the comments, um, you know, permit me to say you have a future as a writer. And I was like, how does somebody even do that? <laughs> so, um, and again, like, who are these writers? Who are the people who make their living doing this? So I think it took a long time to come back to it. You know, after college, I did a two-year volunteer program in Belize. Um, and Belize is tropical. It's like muggy. It's very warm. And the the coolest part of the day is five in the morning. So I'd wake up at five um, it, to take advantage of the coolness and I'd go for a walk and then I would just come back and write in a journal. Um, so, you know, I'm back in Albuquerque, back in New Mexico after two years in Belize with all these journals and was fortunate enough to meet uh, Cecilio Garcia Camarillo um, through another dear friend, Arturo Sandoval. And um, Arturo was like, Cecilio, Michelle wants to write. Can you just look at her stuff and tell her if it's worth a, you know, bleep? <laughs> and so Cecilio was like, just so kind, you know, and he, he, he's like, I made some soup. Why don't you come over and have soup and, um, and bring a poem? So I had the one poem that I had written and I was so hungry at that time to have somebody tell me that I was good um, to have somebody like validate my voice. And he had this really like kind of sparse kitchen and, and beautiful walls. I think one was painted like a dark blue and another one was red. And then his, his son's Italian's paintings were on the wall. And, um, and I'm getting a little, a little okay, family, I'm, I'm getting a bit, um, emotional too, because they're both gone now. And, um, Cecilio sat me on one chair on one side of his kitchen and then he sat across from me on the other side and he said, read your poem. So I read it and then he just nodded and maybe he said, mm, and nodded. And I was like, am I good? <laughs> like I didn't ask him that, but am I a good writer? Can I do this? And then he said, read it again. So I said, okay, and I read it again, and he did the same thing. And then he said, read it again, and I read it again. And then he said, how do you feel? And I, I said, oh, I, I feel, um, feel nervous. Um, and something in me is loosened. And he said, good, that's good. And that was it. <laughs> like he, didn't, he didn't critique it. He didn't say write more, but I think just that experience of being so deeply witnessed by somebody that I respected and and cared about, who is such a beautiful human being, was um, transformative for me. Mm. Um, and it took many years after that for me to um, take a writing class to recognize that um, just like... Um, like any other practice that if you practiced something, you could, you could become good at it. You could master it. You could um, continue working with that. So, 
you know, my, my doorway into that was through voice lessons. And I recognized that, wow, the more that I sing, the better I get at singing it as if I practice it well enough. Well, if that's true for voice, maybe that's also true for writing. And what's the one thing I do every single day that I don't complain about that, that doesn't feel like work or a chore? Well, I write. Mm -hmm. So what if I studied that? What if I just did a little bit every day and took a class? Um, I think early on, I was really attracted to this idea of the prodigy or like you had to be a genius or it had to be innate in you. And, um, and Harvard really disavowed me. <laughs> just, like, it took those four years to figure out like how to ask for help, how to, um, how to practice um, how to practice at something. And, um, and yeah. And so that's where I it just started to become more um, started to just take classes and kind of enter into writing more as a, as a student rather than as somebody who had to be perfect mm. right away. Thank you so much, Michelle. I love the, I loved your story all the way through. And um, Cecilio Gar Garcia Camarillo was actually my mentor. And um, Generation Justice is Generation Justice and structured the way it is because of that mentorship. And so his spirit lives on. And um, I just love that story all the way through. So thank you. Thank you for that. Damien, we'd love to hear your story. Oh, gosh, where do I begin? I guess it would be in 10th grade, my moment when I decided that I loved writing poetry and that I was going to pursue that in my life in whatever form that I could. I had a really rough year that year. Uh, we lost my mother unexpectedly. And at the time I was taking a um, uh, great books was the name of the course uh, at Albuquerque High School with uh, John Tritica who was unbeknownst to me, a poet and professor at UNM. I thought he was just the kind of nerdy teacher that taught my class. And before my mother got sick, we had a moment where in class, there was a headbutting between the students and Mr. Tritica. He was having us read a book that we absolutely could not connect with culturally and just before that lesson, he taught us the letter from the Birmingham jail and talked to us about, uh, talked to us about um, boycotts. And we decided to stage a boycott in class and we refused to read this book. And rather than yell at us or get us in trouble for not doing the assignment, he listened to us and he said, well, let's switch the material and content. And that was how I first read Levi Romero's poetry. Mm. He introduced us to Jimmy Santiago Baca and Rodolfo Anaya's work as well. And that to me was the most impactful moment um, as far as knowing what writers are out there and published who are coming from the same background and community as me. And if they did that, that inspired me that I could do it as well. And as the time went on in that, uh, in that school year, my mother got sick and passed away in February of that year unexpectedly. And my first poem that I wrote that I consider my first poem 
was written while we were waiting in the hospital, um, in the emergency room um, waiting area. And I wrote a piece about the sounds of the hospital and was really trying to just sort of get my feelings out as I was in that moment. And from then on, um, later on that summer, my Spanish teacher, Susan Gandert, um, the sister of uh, uh, Miguel Gandert, the photographer, um, recommended me to the Voces Writing Institute, which was its pilot year. The first year it was going to be tried out in 2002. And from there, I met several amazing poets from here in Albuquerque. I met Tony Mares. He was one of my instructors, Demetrio Martinez, another, the hip hop artist, Mike 360. I met all of the slam poets, Ken Rodriguez. And um, from then on, that was what I decided that I was going to do. I was going to be a poet. Wow. Thank you so much, Damien, for, for sharing your story. And um, with all of you, uh, Tanea, Hakeem, Levi, Michelle and Damien, I'm hearing these um, these themes for each of you who are very different human beings in different backgrounds. But definitely what I hear is that standing on the shoulders of ancestors, standing on the shoulders of the giants that um, are so frequently in New Mexico, especially I think, and for commu BIPOC communities, unsung heroes, but we know that they're heroes. We know that to us, they were heroes and that they changed the trajectory of our lives. And so you've just done each of you such a beautiful job of honoring those that inspired you, that coached you, that guided you to becoming the, the writers that now you all inspire so many other people through your written word, through your spoken word. And the other theme I keep hearing is how belonging is so important to each of us. And um, that is just so powerful. So thank you, each of you, for sharing your beautiful stories. You are listening to Generation Justice, broadcasted on 89.9 KUNM-FM. Tonight, this special edition of GJ, we bring you the Rodolfo Anaya Radio Tribute, a celebration of poets. This is hosted by Generation Justice and in partnership with the Rodolfo and Patricia Anaya Lecture on the Literature of the Southwest and in partnership with the KUNM Spoken Word Hour. We're excited to have Tanea Winder, Hakeem Bellamy, Levi Romero, Michelle Otero, and Damian Flores. Now, I'd like to welcome you each to share one piece of poetry that you've prepared for us today. And we'll go in the same order. We'll, lis we'll listen first to Tanea Winder, then Hakeem Bellamy, Levi Romero, Michelle Otero, and then Damian Flores. Sure. So um, I'm going to read one that was just published in um, the Poetry Foundation's first ever youth issue for young readers. And, you know, just thinking about the time in my life when I read Bless Me Ultima and reading about somebody writing about their childhood with all of those things. Um, you know, I'm the next thing I'm working on that feels even more vulnerable. So I have even a greater appreciation 
for Rodolfo for writing Bless Me Ultima because um, I'm wanting to write something like a young adult book, uh, poetry, young adult novel in verse. So this poem comes from memories of my childhood. I was born in the 80s. So when I grew up, my aunties would listen to like uh, Guns N' Roses a lot or a lot of Journey. Like each of us had our own song that we liked on Journey. So that's where this poem comes from. It's called Uncharted Territory of Grief. Summers meant sticking my arm out the back of a res car. No other windows rolled down. Consequences of a mechanic, some stranger's calloused hands left us with sticky summers, sweat dripping from our foreheads. I waved to make-believe friends and hungry ghosts. My arms danced against the wind, taking comfort in the resistance of warm desert air. The ghosts sang along as journeys, keys and bass blared through a battery-powered boombox. The car hugged the highway curves like a child holding its mom's hand, afraid to walk alone in the dark. Our grandmothers told us stories of the desert how giant serpents laid on mountains to create canyons. Imagine earth crunching under the weight of unbearable sadness. Imagine what it feels like to collapse into an uncharted territory of grief. As young girls, we learned the tale of a mother who cried so many tears. She created a lake in the middle of the desert. Today, she sits in stone beneath a star-stitched sky, holding up the otherwise untethered blue. Last month, I read an orca gave birth to a female calf who died 30 minutes after entering our world. The orca carried her dead calf for 17 days. Tethered by grief, hers the price paid for love and loving. At 34, my sister gives birth to her first child, a winter-born boy. In recovery, my sister asks if she can walk yet. Her nurse says, wait until your legs are yours again. I wonder who and what I've carried and carry for days, months, for years. Grandmother, take me back to your childhood. Were you saying blue moon in boarding school? Where you won the talent show? Take me back to 17 when my back first curved into an S, the serpent inside me coiled under grief, my scoliosis stopping any sports outside of prayers and inside dreams. I wish we'd had more time. Take me back to the day my fingers learned the blues until chords calloused their tips, the electric progression of ain't got no home etched into my body's memory. Take me back to when we were all children given songs to sing, the ones you proclaimed were anthems, predictions for how we would love. Take me back to when we were all children saying, let's pretend. We'd yet to swim through grief. Our spirits hadn't been crushed by fists breaking through bedroom walls, and I could still hold your hand in the dark. Let's pretend our ghosts have been fed. Let's make believe our hearts are ours so we can walk again. Reverse the journey, play back the boom box, rewind the cassette tape to our favorite part where we all sing along to the na 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 na's. 
until my lungs can remember what it's like to breathe in a world where you are still here and I am still waving at ghosts through the back window singing, now it's your turn, girl, to cry. Ooh, I felt that. Thank you. The line, and I don't have it exactly, Tanea, but the line of like, where our hearts can be our own again, that I felt so deeply. Um, thank you for your beautiful, exquisite work and how you weave words that open our hearts. Thank you. So, Hakim. This poem is titled by, uh, you know, Rudolfo's seminal work, Bless Me Ultima. Uh, and I have a little foreword here because I wrote it in 2012. And it says, written, after the 20, written in 2012, after rereading Bless Me Ultima and watching the screening of the film at the National Hispanic Cultural Center. Um, I remember that very well. My son was five and we were sitting in the back and that was his first experience with this novel. Um, and, uh, and Antonio, I believe, was six. So that was our conversation on the way home. <laughs> so it's called Bless Me. No, Antonio, you are not broken. You will fix us in the places that miracles have failed and forgotten. Eastern New Mexico has been fighting long before World War II and it's quite normal for war to make people lose their faith in everything. But you are fact and where you are from is fertile here they harvest soldiers and priests for lunch. But you are cosmic, a constellation of culture that could tip the entire Yano towards the sun, just to get her attention, to remind her that we are her children, dying to get closer to her by bullet or belief. And you, Antonio, will concern yourself with the fate of every soul, while the church concerns itself with the fate of every pocket. Guadalupe is more than just your home, Antonio. It is where your heart is buried beneath the beaten, beneath the beatings, beneath your classmates mocking you, bless me, Antonio, beneath the beating, earth pumping mud through our veins. I may be no virgin, but as sure as Juan Diego smelt the rose petals of Our Lady's breath, I will give you this Nahua, this language of healing and curanderismo in hopes that you one day find yourself, Antonio. And when you do, perhaps you will even find your God curled up behind you, protect him, speak to him in the tongue of the land I taught you, and then tell him pick up a shovel and saddle up because there are too many miracles and not enough time because this is the army the priests should have prayed for, the army soldiers should have joined because we need all the help we can get. So nice. Thanks, Hakeem. Sticking with that one. <laughs> It feels good to share poems again with my peeps. <laughs> Too many miracles and not enough time. That's what I'm carrying from that. Thank you so much. Levi. Um, this poem, Tres Copas de Chanate, Black and Sweet, was a poem that uh, I submitted probably under the encouragement of Lucy Tapahanso. I can't remember if it was the first or second issue of Blue Mesa Review, but uh, Rudolfo was one of the editors that year and it won first place in the poetry award section. And that gave me some really good confidence 
acknowledgement, all that that you could ever hope for. And I had some friends that were taking a Chicano Lit class with him. And they always tell me always all these wonderful things about Anaya and his classes. And of course, I wasn't taking any Anaya classes because you remember that part of my story. Uh, but uh, they would tell me that at the end of the semester, they would always, uh, Anaya would always invite different people to come into his classes to, to read. So I was feeling a little good and a little brave. And so I asked my friends to ask him if I could come into his class at the end of the semester and read some poetry. And he said, seguro que sí, envítenlo. So next thing I know, there I am in front of uh, Rudolfo's class reading some poetry. And at that mm. time, I read all my poetry from memory. And this was one of the poems that, that I did. Tres cosas de chanate, black and sweet. Orales saludes de la calle cuarta. South Fourth spicy street overflowing with creamy joy and scornful sorrow. Resembling a faded color, watercolor painting rotting under the sun and growing tangled neath the billboard bosom size of a new frontier. I have felt you waking up sweating to the sounds of 3 a.m. trains rolling in on greasy tracks spreading across your innocence like melting butter on a hot tortilla. Your gold-toothed mouth of prominence has gone silent under the weight of rusted steel and faded brick where cash registers once sang like Christmas chimes. On your black hill streets bleed tattooed backs in blue ink pennants for your soul, proud Puro Varela's 13. Your chapped dusty sidewalks kissing the callous souls of homeless saints rising out of trash bins in the red-eyed dawn are fed by the black vein freeways dripping diseased America into your dirt alley dreams. Your complaints become rheumatoid groans of aching feet sliding across linoleum floors towards clock radios weeping Mexican ballads into the trumpet gold haze of memories too strong to stick or sink into the Rio Grande mud. Me amo Manuel Leiva, but they call me manual labor. Behind the screen windows and padlocked doors of the Red Ball Cafe, sit chrome and metal flake countertops frozen in the chewy silence of a Catholic Sunday ringing sad. A billion more still yearn to be served. And pickup trucks once danced into the Royal Fork restaurant parking lot from Gallup and Farmington, slipping through the honeydew sweetness of ripening September. Oh, earth goddess of asphalt and grime, let me hear your hearty laugh flapping heavy like El Bambio storefront window ads that fill my salty visions with sweet roll promises crumbling onto the dry tongue of my worn out shoes. Mm. Thanks, Levi. Yeah. Yeah, Levi. Thank you so much, Levi, for that beautiful poem. Um, Michelle. Um, so this poem, uh, I, I wrote the poem I'm going to read for the uh, Kids Count Conference in um, in 2019. And part of what I so love about you know, my, my first experience with Rudy Anaya's work, um, Bless Me Ultima, was that it was centered on a child and it was this relationship between a little boy and, and an old woman. 
um, just as, as he was coming into her, his life and she's coming out of hers and how she transfers that wisdom to him. And, um, I love that relationship so much. I, I, I did a whole Ted talk about it, uh, about, um, the masculine and the feminine and how that book really embodies it. Um, so I thought a lot about that relationship and, and how children grow in this place and what they really need um, as I was putting this poem together. To grow a child in New Mexico. You were born at Cottonwood Spore in drought. You were born in monsoon. You were born in a season of fire. You were born flor de tuna rodeada de espinas. You were born head first in the center of the earth. You learned to crawl among mother roots, learned mother tongues. You fed on stories and flower tortillas, suckled caldo from grandmother's fingertips. You were raised by many mothers, by atole in a tin cup, by the light of a south-facing wall. You forgot your language, the road washed out behind you, you fought a war nobody knows. You came home. You never left. You were yerba buena. You were yerba del manso. You were passion flower named for Christ. What does it take to grow a child? More sunlight, water, well-drained soil. What if butterflies, guitarra y acordeón? What if bosque, if dicho y hecho, if paintbrush, if pluma? We pray for you with our hands, fashion a vessel of mud, of bone. Hearing is the last sense to leave the body. We work to give you enough to speak to us, enough to sing. Wow. <laughs> mm. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. Michelle, I love your work. Your imagery is so cool. And just the, the, the crafting of the language, it's just so fluid. It's like... It's like like water running through the river. It's some of, I love your work. Oh, thank you, Damian. Oh, that, that means so much on, on this call in particular and coming from you. Thank you. Always great, Michelle. And I love the way the bilingual just sort of flows right in and out, which is really the sign of a bilingual writer, a bilingual speaker, multilingual, really. Um, and because it's it feels just so natural and uh, you that you do that so naturally, so effectively. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I, I think that's another thing that Rudolfo and I gave us, right? Is just that permission to to be able to to do that, to to write in the way that um, to write in a non-italicized way, whether you italicize your words or not. But this is not that bilingualism. It's not a foreign language. It's the way. It's the vernacular of, of this place and these people, um, you know, our people. So, yeah. Yeah, if I can say something about that in, in a non-italicized way, because uh, the last piece of his that he had published in his lifetime was his foreword that he wrote for the anthology that I co-edited with Spencer and Vanessa, Cadencia Reflections on the New Mexico Homeland. And I was working with him on on that essay and um, it had been submitted and had gone to the editors of UNM Press and it came back and uh, the Spanish words were italicized and some of the other words were corrected uh, to be the more formal Spanish. And Rudolfo was so upset by that 
that he said, if it doesn't get fixed to my liking, I'm going to pull it. You guys can't use it. <laughs> so I went in and I fixed things according to what um, Rodolfo wanted, which was to take out the italics. Mm. Uh, he said, we shouldn't be italicized. Our language should not be italicized, right? Uh, so he was adamant about that. Exactly what you're mm. talking about, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you for writing that poem for New Mexican children. Thank you. It's an honor. Yeah. And now um, our other partner in this partnership for this radio tribute to the Maestro Rudolfo Anaya, uh, Damien Flores. All right. This piece that I'm about to read is the final piece from my book that was published uh, back in 2016. It's called Junkyard Dogs. And I wrote the final poem in tribute to my mother as well as uh, uh, tribute to Rudolfo Anaya because his work, Bless Me Ultima, was really essential in my own healing and going through um, that trauma when I was that age. And my mother passed away from a stroke when she was 45 years old. You know, it, it just took us all by surprise. And uh, about a year and a half ago, I suffered a stroke as well. And so this is, you know, my, my reflection on that time. And I think, you know, the medical advances from the time that my mother um, had passed to the moment when I had my incident um, was, it was, it was so profound, but I also really think, you know, that my mother passed so that I might live because mm -hmm. my doctors looked into my family history and saw what my mother had gone through. And they knew exactly what to do and how to help me in the surgery that um, uh, I went through um, was a revolutionary surgery and is, you know, something that's just in my mind. I'm very grateful to be on this earth and to share this wonderful, you know, uh, reading with you all. And so here's my poem in honor of my mother and Rudolfo. Um, it's called February 17th and it's structured um, like a rosary. The first mystery. I dreamed this all. The morning my mother died, I saw her in the emergency room bed, curtain pulled back, her short torn from where the doctors cut, defibrillator burns on her chest, a plastic tube taped to her mouth. My stepfather slouched in the chair beside her, my grandparents praying over her. The stroke left her burning for 30 days. I dreamed this all to life. The second ministry. How the holier than thou ladies at church wept when they learned how my mother died without her last rites. You must take care of your soul at all times, the catechism teacher warned the class when I showed up late for the last time. The next Sunday, the God they taught me was not the same God we prayed to in my home. The God of the dirt and the river and the corn was the God of all things, and he would not have my mother suffer more than she did. Would her hell be life relived? Would her face be forever bruised into knots from my father's fists? Would she be working three jobs till Jesus comes? Would she look into whatever mirrors there are in eternity and always see her face how she never wanted to be remembered? Wrinkled paralytic slumped so swollen she couldn't even cry she's already burned and the god i knew knew this also 
my mom's not in hell, I said as I walked out of St. Mary's. And I'd grown used to the pity and stupid things people say when they don't know what to say. That poor girl at school who empathized because she knew exactly what I was going through because her dog died that summer. And I sat in my room in those days after, all angry that everyone was feeling sorry for me instead of for themselves. But I guess we're all gonna burn someday. The third mystery. We found an owl in the basketball hoop in the backyard a week ago. Grandma wanted to kill it, a bad omen that needed to be handled, a demon sent by someone with a grudge. Its blood stained the driveway, trapped in the net like a nightmare in a dream catcher. But my stepfather let the owl live. He buried his superstitions as a boy when he buried his mother after a dead man curved car crash on his sleda. Bull, I thought I heard him say as he climbed the ladder. The owl clawed him when he cut it down, and Grandma blessed his bleeding hand with holy water, then doused the bird its eyes locked with hers and hissed. The fourth mystery. I locked my bedroom door with the rusty hook latch, not like anyone would bother me anyway. My grandparents mourned by keeping silence in the house, so I searched their shelves for dusty books. I found Ultima this way. Second edition, ink drawings of La Curandera and her boy scattered between the chapters the golden carp, the good owl, las hermanas brujas, the good magic cures of herbs and prayers. Hours I spent on my bed in the dim light of a broken lamp looking for answers. Ultima means the last one. My family lived this. I learned many families like mine lived this and there aren't many of us like there used to be. Some nights I'd stay up long past two in the morning. I was always a slow reader. The fifth mystery. The night of the rosary was the first time I ever sat in the front row of a church. San Felipe was full. My family, my neighbors and friends all huddled in the pews. And I knew they were all watching me, peering around shoulders to steal a pitiful look. And I scared them because I couldn't cry. And I sat as the brothers of the Good Shepherd knelt around her casket. White robed, they sang El Santo Rosario. It was the song of my grandmother kneeling at her bedside, praying to El Santo Nino for all of us. The harmonies filled the church like candlelight, and I closed my eyes. I felt the presence of a boy beside me. He whispered me the words before they came, so I sang like I was expected. I did not open my eyes because I was afraid if I did, he'd be gone if I tried to look. And I wished I could disappear like my visions did whenever someone gave me that sorry look and their faces would harden like those saints in the nichos of that church because I snuffed myself out on the altar like a candle flame. Through closed eyes, I heard that little nowhere boy's voice. Hail, Holy Queen. At the funeral, I gave my mother's eulogy. I don't remember what I said, but I remember the pallbearers lifting her casket. I remember the long line of people who shook my hand as they placed flowers in her grave. I remember trembling as I spoke. 
I remember that night I finished reading Ultima and I wrote my first poem. 10 years gone now, I stand at Calvary Cemetery on this 17th day of February to remember you, mama. I can't help but think of the weeks alone in my room with my book, the angry blood I'll still have, I'll always have. I'll always be prepared to lose everything and build it all again. I learned we are the curanderos who only know how to heal ourselves. Bless me, mama. I am a poet now. Look at what I've done. Look at all I've done. Thank you. Oh, look at what you've done. That's just, oh, thank you, Damien. That's the, that's the alchemy, right? Mm -hmm. um, just taking that experience and um, I'm so moved by your work. Yes. Thank you for that. Thank you. That means a lot to me. Thank you very much. Yeah. Amen. Damien, that was truly a, pr a prayer in itself. Gracias. I'm so grateful that all of us are here together, experiencing this together. Um, yeah, Damien, I'm um, in este momento sin palabras. I'm just feeling so deeply. Um, so thank you for, for burying your soul and burying your heart. And that what kept coming up for me was just healing that this is how we heal. So thank you. You are tuned in to 89.9 KUNM. And this is a special edition of Generation Justice and the Spoken Word Hour. This evening, we are in a tribute to Rodolfo Anaya with the celebration of poets. We have with us this evening, our very own spoken word host, Damien Flores, who is also a two-time National Poetry Slam champion, a two-time College Union Poetry Slam champion, a performer, author, and educator. We also have Tanea Winder, who is an author, singer, songwriter, motivational speaker, and educator. Hakeem Bellamy, who was the inaugural Poet Laureate for the city of Albuquerque from 2012 to 2014, and is currently the Deputy Director of the Cultural Services Department for the city of Albuquerque. Levi Romero, the 2020 inaugural New Mexico Poet Laureate and the 2012 New Mexico Centennial Poet. And Michelle Otero, who served as the Poet Laureate of Albuquerque from 2018 to 2020. She is also an author and a professional coach. Welcome to all of you again. Welcome to the second hour of the special tribute to Rodolfo Anaya, a celebration of poets. This is a partnership between Generation Justice and the Spoken Word Hour, as well as the UNM English Department's Rodolfo and Patricia Anaya Lecture on the Literature of the Southwest. This evening, the poets that we are so humbled to present are Tanea Winder, Hakeem Bellamy, Levi Romero, Michelle Otero, and Damian Flores. And now I want to ask each of you 
about Rodolfo Anaya's work and its significance to you as a writer, as a poet. You can include uh, a memorable moment, a memorable piece. And then I want to let our listeners know that you're also going to be reading some of Rodolfo's own work. And we're going to start again with Tanea. Yeah, so I often talk a lot about this whenever I'm visiting schools and talking about poetry, like it finds its way into my keynotes. You know, my high school, and I'll say that they do a lot better now, like now they have AP classes, they have, I think they have IB, but back when I was a student, they didn't have that much. I feel like school wasn't really prioritized in the same way, like we had a different principal each year, we had a different counselor, and so my English teacher at the time, um, I remember we would just read some Shakespeare plays every now and then. And we would just sit and do crosswords, like match the definition of the word. And that was what we did. You know, if I just didn't have my own independent love of reading, I felt like I would have been really unprepared for college. But it was in my Southwest Studies class that our teacher had us read um, Tony Hillerman. She had us read Rodolfo Anaya. And I remember reading Bless Me Ultima, and that was the first time I just felt represented at all in literature, like just out of, you know, when you have just Shakespeare offered to you at school and just all the things my cousin was reading at her, her like nicer school, I would try to read those things like Catcher in the Rye, books like that. But Bless Me Ultima, it almost felt just like home, you know, like, um, I was like, are we supposed to be saying these things? Like, can we write about this? Like, can we write about the power that our relatives have? Like, and just being so close to my grandmother, you know, and believing in the power of people to heal in their own ways with gifts. It was just mind blowing. Like, it almost felt like a secret. Like, I should just keep this to myself. Um, so that was when I first encountered um, Rudolfo Anaya's work. And I always like share that whenever I get to with people because Bless Me Ultima is a wonderful book. It provides that inlet. And I think it really just speaks to the value of, of the timelessness of a book. Like that's a book that can be read, like his work could be read over and over. And it doesn't have to be, you know, now what's trending on social media or what's a New York Times bestseller. Like it is okay to go back to some of those books and remember the magic that the author brought into your life. Thank you for that. The description of it being like a secret is so relatable to me because that's how it still feels like. Like, can we talk about curanderismo? Can we talk about the healer, the women that are healers and how sacred that is and how important it was for Rodolfo at that point that he wrote that book to share that and open that up. And so Hakeem, if you would share with us Anything else you'd like to share about the first time you encountered El Maestro's work and the impact that it's had on you as a newly Nuevo Mexicano? Sure, yes, as a, as a transplant. You know, when I, when I landed here, and when I, when I came here, I wasn't a poet yet. I know it feels weird to say, but when I arrived here, I was like, just like, some kid from South Jersey at UNM. And it wasn't until like, I, I don't even think I went to my first poetry slam. I came in, in, in January of 05 and arrived. I, I joke that I arrived on MLK day and what's blacker than that. But I think I went to my first slam in February. So I'd been, you know, just doing my normal 
trying to matriculate, trying to go to classes, trying to figure out what it meant to be a, a, a graduate student, <laughs> 26-year-olds living, living in Onyate Hall, a dorm. Um, and so and then I found a, a slam to go to. It was actually the um, at the Golden West Saloon, which has since been ablaze and now has no roof and it's something else now, a nightlife venue. And I showed up there and kind of kind of read my first poem and it changed my life, like literally, like I've read my first poem in public in Albuquerque <laughs> next to the El Rey Theater and it changed my life. Like all the people, I know all the people on this screen because of that, right? Because of that, that night. But I remember like shortly thereafter, talking to some of my elders in the poetry slam scene, Damien mentioned Ken Rodriguez, uh, Don McIver, at the time, Danny Solis was still here. And these were people that were like, hey, kid, stick around, read more poems. But if you're going to be here, <laughs> like, there are some names you need to know. <laughs> like, 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 hey, new guy, we're going to help you not step in the, in the caca. And, uh, and that was just one of the names that they mentioned. Like, go read somebody. Like, go read some work from this area. Like, you know, and it was like Rudy, it was uh, Tony Mares, who I got to meet and actually become friends with. It was Levi. And it was like, these, like, these are just people you should know that are like, that, that aren't like people you're going to see at a slam, but you should know their work. Cause if you're going to even attempt to storytell in this region, you should understand the legacy of storytelling in this region. And that's when I learned names. Like I got Demetria Martinez's name came up, Sandra Cisneros name. And I, because like when someone tells me to go look something up or read it, I actually go do it. So I did, <laughs> like, like I did. And I kind of picked up, uh, picked up Bless Me Ultima and um, was like, let me check this out. And, and I was just like, I was struck like by later, you know, we could, like the academic terminology, like magical realism. So, Rudolfo's work gave me like I, like dreaming and the 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 margin between what's real and what's not real and that being blurry and you know faith in contrast to, not even in contrast faith is magic but in contrast to magic and medicine those things were like oh like I I've been doing this for a long time and I'm not from Albuquerque like I was doing this in my bedroom with my younger brother growing up and immediately felt familiar. It felt like, oh, like if you're gonna tell stories, you don't have to tell them like, you know, whoever else you've been reading prior to this, you can actually just tell your stories. And, uh, and I just felt like that there was permission in his work to kind of say like, yeah, like have fun, be young. And, I, and later, like when I got all academic and I was trying to teach Rudolfo's work in classes in a Chicana studies program at UNM and, and at IAIA and introducing, you know, Runayo to new generations, right, of writers, emerging writers, kind of being like, yeah, like even just saying I'm going to create a story from the perspective of either myself when I was six or a six-year-old to me was like, oh, so we can like, role play and imagine and that's going to be and that's going to be okay and and in doing it in a way that was like you know not um not harper lee's way like in uh to kill a mockingbird but in a way that is actually organic and germane to communities of color i was like this is cool i'm interested in this like i want to learn more about how to do this and uh and, and and ultimately saying like that these are spells themselves even though that's not overtly part of the work at least for bless me ultima but there is magic in it and it say like oh yeah so these are like we're actually conjuring when we're doing this and i was like yeah i i'm interested in that i'm interested in learning how to do that and then i was exposed to more and later i used to teach uh, the poem i'll read later what what whitman strides the yano in my classes because i just thought it was fun i was like i love the idea of taking these 
sacrosanct figures and turning them upside down and turning them around and, you know, putting them in the hood. <laughs> like, I was like, this is cool. I mean, this is like shape-shifting and time travel. I'm all about this life. So that was my early experience with, uh, with Rudolfo Naya. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Hakeem. Levi, I know you have probably, of all of us in this room, you probably have the longest history with Mr. Anaya and um, really would love to hear your early, both your early in introduction to him, but also just the impact on your work. Yeah, um, for me, um, my first introduction to Rodolfo, like so many students, I think uh, in New Mexico, English classes, uh, I was introduced to Bless Me Ultima although I think it was my sister who brought the book home. And, and then that's when I first read it. And clearly it was obvious that it was uh, writing about something that I hadn't encountered in a book before that had been, uh, you know, required reading in an English class. It was so different and distinct. And then uh, the way that uh, my parientes, my primos from La Academia would talk about Rudolfo because they were all friends. They were all working together. They were activists. Um, then they talked about him as if he was just a paisano, just as if he was somebody from the familia. So I kind of knew him in that way without yet having met him. But uh, my first sort of introduction to him was when I was a student of creative writing in the English department on the second floor. And I would walk around uh, the second level and I used to like to walk by his office and I would just stop and I would marvel at all the things that he had pinned up or painted to the wall, you know, or pinned or uh, up on the wall or on his door, uh, book jackets and flyers, upcoming readings, readings that had already happened. And they all tended to be Native American, Chicano or authors, you know, people of color. And I was just fascinated by that because I, you know, my trajectory into university was, wasn't like straight out of high school and into college. It, it took a while to get there. And so when I got there, I didn't even know if I belonged and I was an architecture student, and uh, that was even just as much of a foreign place as the university itself. And so walking by Anaya's office, and it was just like knowing that he was there made me feel like I belong to, right? And so for me, I've been blessed. I've been fortunate that, uh, again, I mentioned Lucy Tapahanso, Sandra Cisneros, Joy Harjo, these folks, and there have been others too, but... My associations with them, I, I, I loved their work and I studied their work like my life depended on it and it did. But one of the things, because I was so fortunate and was able to take these classes with them is that I was able to hang on to their coattails and uh, I would just love to hang around with them. I wanted to know what a poet lived like, what a poet, how they looked at the world, how they took the world in. And it wasn't enough for me to just see it off of the page, but I had to be around them. I had to be around them when they needed somebody to go with them to pick up their car from the mechanics or just to walk across campus to get a cup of coffee or something like that. And that's what I was really, really into was like really getting to know the human side of a Joy or a Sandra or a Rudolfo or a Lucy, right? And they let me into their worlds. And I was just like, that's really how my mentorship grew with them. And with Rudolfo, 
I would go spend time with him at his house and he'd always have these great, amazing stories. And, you know, uh, I've shared this story before, but as writers, uh, sometimes we kind of feel like I just can't really write anymore for whatever reason. We come up with all these excuses or whatever. And I'm sitting there in Rodolfo's kitchen and he starts telling me a story about uh, there was a time in his life when um, his shoulders were really bothering him and he couldn't hold up his hands to work on his word processor any longer but he was working on a novel. And so he had somebody tie, uh, he had somebody mount a hook up in the ceiling and then tie a calabrote through the hook down to where he could tie his arm to this rope. And that's what held his arms up while he was typing on his word processor. And I'm sitting there thinking like, whoa, that is how the Godfather of Chicano literature does it. You know, not like me where I'm using air, looking for every, nice little excuse that I can find so that I don't have to, to write, you know, um, even though, of course, like all of you here, my life depends on it. But if I can get away from that, that cruise, you know, I will, you know, I'm, I'll put it down if I can. <laughs> but there was Rodolfo and he wasn't putting down the cross. He was lifting it up and finding a way to do it. So those were the lessons that I took from him. Uh, there's something else too, that was cool. Uh, when I was the keynote speaker for the Big Read in Taos, and they were using Bless Me Ultima that year for the Big Read project. And I went by to talk with Rodolfo and just kind of get some insights about him and what I could share with the audiences. And I had a conversation with him that I that I wrote about. And uh, it this kind of goes back a little ways. But for me, it's like if I just had that conversation with him this morning, I'll, I'll read it for you here. I had a conversation with Rodolfo recently. I told him that in my latest reading of Bless Me Ultima, I had appreciated the book twice as much, this time from both a reader's and a writer's perspective. He smiled and said that when he got ready to go down into his studio to write, he would ask his wife Patricia if she had packed him a can of Spam in his lunch pail. Do you know why I do that? He asked me, of course you do. He said, I'm just like those men from the villages. When they go to the Monte for a truckload of wood, they always take their lonche because they know it's going to be a long day. And like the storytellers of my childhood and their darkened casitas and the shamans who live alone in their world of creativity and healing, Rudolfo sits before the page blessing us not one last time not una ultima vez, but one more time, because that is the power of story to endure and to transcend, to bring people together as neighbors and hold in beauty that which flees from us in the shyness of the light. Everything is connected, Ultima reminds us. Take all that is good and beautiful into your heart. You will see says Ultima, you will see how it is all one marvelous mystery. Levi, thank you for all of those stories and uh, your beautiful memories. And now, Michelle Otero. So I have a um, bookshelf, like one shelf on my large bookshelf that has books that I will just go back to again and again. So there's um, Ceremony, Pedro Paramo, House of the Spirits, I just added, oh my gosh, On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous by Ocean Wong and, um, and Bless Me Ultima. And, um, and it's that, that thing that, that Levi spoke about of, um, you know, I, I was just rereading Bless Me Ultima and I noticed something different about it. Or there's, and, and for me, finding that book 
having that book come to me and I don't remember, I, I think my dad had it. My dad has always been just this avid reader. He loves, I love being able to share my friend's books with him because he'll just devour them. And so everything about even the title, like Bless Me Ultima, it, it just that it was, that there's a blessing in it, that it made reference to being Catholic, that the central character's name was a, a brown woman you know, that her name had an accent and it wasn't easy to pronounce all of those things. And then just seeing the, both the reverence and the irreverence for the church, that it was set in this village, that it was in rural New Mexico, was just like nothing I had ever read. And it was, um, I can't remember the writer who speaks about this, but she says to write from your home address. (laughs) um, It might be Marjorie Agostin. Yeah, to write from your home address. And as I said earlier, it was about kind of just having permission to be able to do that, that somebody could be interested or it's just written with such sincerity and no pretense. And I think that's that's what's so nurturing to me about that book. And so when I get kind of caught up in myself or I'm doing, I'm not going to the basement as Sandra Cisneros says, um, I'll just pick up Les Ultima again and read it again. You know, so I've, I actually only met Rudy Anaya once and it wasn't even in my capacity as a writer. It was um, as a parent. My stepdaughter, Paloma, was cast in the lead in uh, The Farolitos of Christmas. And years before that, I had been in The Farolitos of Christmas. So I, I played the, the Maria. And then I, um, and then a few years after that, I had the opportunity to play Ultima. And I, you know, I parted my hair on the gray side. <laughs> so I look a little older, but now I think I could do it <laughs> a lot more gray than I did then. Um, but he attended one of the performances. And um, I just remember going with her up to him and saying, you know, this is Paloma, this is Luz. And he, you know, was very, there were just people all around him, right? And I wondered, what's it like to be this person that so many people feel like they know? And to really have this need for solitude in, in, in order to be able to write. And yet you have the sense when you're reading him that you're around a, a kitchen table with him or sitting in his living room. Um, there's that level of intimacy. And I, I think that I don't have as much of this as I did then, but I also kind of have, have had a shyness with writers that I've admired for so long. And it's the beauty of this community, this community in Albuquerque. And I think the community of um, Chicano writers as well, that you can, it's usually only like one or two degrees of separation to this writer that you deeply love. So I, although I. I don't know him. I didn't know Rodolfo and I if intimately feel like I've gotten to know him really well on the page and also through my friendship with Levi, that there's a kind of a vicarious friendship with him. And and I hope that he knows and knew what he's meant to so many of us. Michelle, thank you so very much for sharing. And I absolutely agree with you. And that's some of the magic of writing and in this case, Rodolfo Anaya's writing, that we all feel like we know him. We all feel connected. And Damien, I'd love to bring you in now and hear what has been the influence on you from this maestro. All right. I've got a couple of cool little stories about Rodolfo Anaya and my young 
high school, um, you know, my beginnings as a, a poet. And I was getting involved in the Albuquerque poetry slam scene. I was doing the open mics and I was um, also doing uh, the youth radio internship at KUNM that same year. And I was very fortunate to receive a scholarship to the Latino Writers Conference at the Hispanic Cultural Center right at that time. And I got to skip school for the day and still get credit to go and work with all of these amazing writers. And I got to sit on uh, or sit in and participate in Rudolfo Anaya's uh, writer's workshop, which was really cool. I got to do um, a writing prompt with him leading and he was so charismatic and just uh, uh, it was like his aura just emanated, which was awesome. And then later that evening, he was the keynote performer for the culminating event uh, for the conference. And he told a story about how he wrote Bless Mi Ultima when he was teaching at Albuquerque High School. So that's where I went to school. I'm from Old Town. Um, so I have that connection to him as well. And he would get up at four o'clock in the morning because school starts at 725. He had his family and everyone to take care of. But the only quiet time that he could have to write to himself or by himself was to get up before everybody else in the house woke up. And that was the discipline that it took for him to, you know, write. And so that always inspired me, that extra hard work, the self-reflection and the willingness to, you know, edit your work and to put in as much of yourself into your piece. And that was pivotal for me, um, especially um, once I got into college and pursued creative writing. And I had so many classes to balance, but I also still had to work on my creative work. And so I looked at that as, a, as a, a, an example to follow. The other thing was that my second book I read from Rudolfo, and I full novel, was his book, Alburquerque, which I loved. I remembered hearing my grandfather tell the story uh, that's at the very beginning of the book that Albuquerque is mispronounced because the train conductor couldn't pronounce Albuquerque when they arrived uh, in the city. And that's where the R got dropped off. And if you look up Albuquerque on a map or Google map, it, it will take you to Spain <laughs> and instead of you know Albuquerque. And that book in particular was super fascinating to me because I grew up during my formidable years, that was at the peak of Albuquerque's boxing champions, Danny Romero and Johnny Tapia. And the character, central character of Albuquerque was a boxer who was coming out of the hood and making a name for himself. And that was just so fascinating to me because it was relevant to what I was seeing in sort of the, you know, the, the, the small cultural zeitgeist of Albuquerque and suddenly you know you're looking at sports center ESPN or reading sports illustrated and you see a borqueño on the cover and that novel really just sort of captured that moment in Albuquerque's um, you know recent history which I was so lucky to watch and live in that moment thank you Damien Thank you all of you for the connection and the connections. And um, one of the things that came, um, like I was thinking about through all of your responses is just in some ways, Bless Me Ultima has had such a deep impact on so many of us that in some ways at 
times of unconsciousness and moments of consciousness that we are living through Ultima's wisdom, that we at times pull upon that wisdom um, and all of the Ultimas that were in our lives, right? That we connected to why we felt that related to our lives, whether it was Hakim as a young person on the East Coast or all of us in New Mexico, that there were Ultimas. And so we pulled upon that wisdom and Rodolfo in his wisdom and in his blessing has brought that forth so that we can pick up a book on our shelf that has been there for 20 or 30 years and, and read it again and reconnect. So thank you so much. You are tuned into a special edition of Generation Justice and the Spoken Word Hour here on KUNM. This is a tribute to Rodolfo Anaya, a celebration of poets. We have with us this evening, Damien Flores, your usual host here at the Spoken Word Hour, Tanea Winder, Michelle Otero, Levi Romero, and Hakeem Bellamy. In addition, Dr. Melina Vizcaino Aleman from the UNM's English department, Rodolfo and Patricia Anaya lecture series. I hope you enjoy the rest of our program. And now, I'd love to bring back with us one of our partners, Dr. Melina Vizcaino Aleman from the English department, who has a very exciting announcement. Melina? Yes, I'm happy to tell listeners that the University of New Mexico has officially approved the Rodolfo Anaya Sala, located in Zimmerman Library, where Rudy did so much of his work. So if you would like to help with the development of the space, which will include memorabilia, a video wall, and so much more, go to the Rodolfo Anaya Sala Fund when you visit unmfund.org to make your donation. And if you have any questions, you can contact the Director of Development on this project, Carol Kennedy, at carol.kennedy at unmfund.org. Org. So I would just like to thank everyone involved in this radio tribute, all the partners for coming together and helping um, execute the vision for this tribute. Thank you so much. And now we're at a point in our production and our program for you all to read Rodolfo's words. And each of you have chosen a poem. The English department gifted you all with the Rodolfo Anaya poems from the Rio Grande, and you've each selected a portion or a poem from this beautiful book. So would you read and share with us one of your selected poems that Rodolfo Anaya wrote? Sure. So um, reading through this, one of the poems, I love it because I feel like poetry it's almost like choose your own adventure sometimes, whatever you're feeling and going through at the moment is what you might pick up on different things in the poem. So this one, um, just because I'm going through a lot of changes in my life, like career, moving, things like that. So this one um, is called Alchemy. Your kisses are the alchemy that turns this leaden heart towards the brilliant morning light as we rise to greet the sun. And so these pounds of mere flesh soar with my soul, whose gold wings weigh toward God, even as I am bound by earth, 
I am the pestle, you are the mortar. Heat compounds love's elements into synthesis, whispering, earth is God and God is earth. We answer the ancient question, I can live in you and you in me. This season of the dying light comes with a promise. Sun will return at night's climax and make shine our love. We cherish and bless each new day, the light and our coming into being. Thank you so much for that beautiful interpretation of Rodolfo Anaya's words. Thank you. Thank you. Hakeem, now your selection. Thank you again, Roberta. Um, I am gonna read the poem, Water. Um, and if you have the reader, as we do, it's on page 76. But the poem, Watcher, that, uh, that Rudolph also has here, that he wrote and or experienced on May 1st, 2007 in Jemez Springs. And uh, my fiance and I were just there a few weeks ago. Uh, it's, a, it's a place that's very familiar. And many New Mexicans, and many Albuquerqueños, excuse me, are fond of. Um, it's kind of like a, a near getaway. Um, but in that vein, shout out to the, the folks and the people um, the ancestors of Jemez Pueblo and, uh, you know, our land acknowledgement um, and the Tiwa folks as well. So, water. There is water in my soul. Sometimes it runs so strong, I am afraid I will drown. Asequia water sprinkles the lawn. Moth and wasp come to drink. In Jemez Springs, the Meodomos guard the water. Water runs in their veins. Water runs in the elm seeds that fall like tiny helicopters turning round and round. They cover me like moss. They covered me like moss covered Rip Van Winkle. I smile at nature. That old bitch is pure water. She guards the water in rock and tree and lilac blooming and hem springs colors so pastel. Those without water in the soul do not see them. I am in nature. I guess I am a poet because water runs in my soul. I cannot stop it. I dare not. I am becoming green. Thank you. Thank you. Levi, I'm so curious which poem you chose uh, for today. Yeah, uh, I'm actually up here in El Puesto de San Antonio del Lembudo, a.k.a. Dixon. <laughs> I'm at our family home. Michelle's been here. Um, Damien, too. Um, and uh, this is my grandparents' house, Silviares and Anita Valdez Duran. It's a house that's probably now 160 years old. And out in the orchard are my grandpa Silviares' fruit trees, still some of them. He was El Verdolero as they knew him all the way to Raton and Dawson and Cimarron. He used to have a trade route all the way to those areas from Embudo on a horse-drawn wagon to take his produce every year in the fall. And um, there's this connection that Rudolfo magically had with the land, with the landscape that he brought to the page. And um, I think in dedication to Nuestros Antepasados, this poem entitled Forgetting is a good homage to what we've been talking about today. This morning, when I was thinking about this afternoon, <laughs> I was thinking, you know, I'm going to have to uh, call Rudolfo and see when he wants to get so I can tell him how it went. He's still so present, so alive in my world, 
and I'm sure in yours too, through his writing, that I forgot that he had passed away. You know, one of the last uh, emails that I got from him really was, uh, I think, like a couple of weeks before he passed away. And we never had a chance to get together to discuss the question that he brought forth, which is Levi. That's how he used to call me, Levi. ¿Qué piensas de este chica next thing? You know, ¿qué piensas? Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, I have my own thoughts, which aren't really fully developed yet. But I said, okay, that's we're going to have to get together and talk about Chicken X. And then he passed away and we never were able to have that conversation. Mm. Forgetting. I am forgetting the names of my apple trees. Is this Macintosh or Rome? I stammer and turn to the red and yellow delicious old friends, easy to spot. I know where those two stand. I know all the trees by heart, where they stand in Hemis earth, their branches smooth as my wife's arms, supple with strength to hold a rich harvest. But I am forgetting the names I gave when I planted. I know the leaves, make no mistake. I know where I pruned cut stock away so blossoms could take hold. And I know how the water from the acequia flows, how the mower moves around each trunk. I know the sound of apples falling as well as the buzz of bees that come to fertilize in spring. I know how many things of this silence in Hemis Canyon the sound of Melvin's mower or John's truck glens tinkering. I know the sound and light of sun coming over the mesa, a miracle. Like a basket full of apples, my soul is full of sounds, smells, images. Each has a place in the shelves of my heart. I have gathered and harvested so much over these 63 years, I am as fat as autumn. But I am forgetting the names of trees, not the taste that spills sweet on my tongue, not the feel of earth or fruit, not the light that fills my soul. No, only the names. I am forgetting the sounds of words. I speak, and in the middle, I forget syllables. So I invent strange new words. I smile, but others watch me carefully. I am forgetting the names of friends. Levi, thank you. That was, it was just so powerful. And um, I feel like your voice carried through his spirit. So thank you. I was actually afraid of that poem, Levi. That's why I didn't pick it. Um, when my father passed a year and a half ago, he, he uh, had Alzheimer's, dementia, Lewy body. We don't quite know, uh, an illness of memory loss. And um, that poem brought me to tears when I read it the first time. I mean, you all sent me this book. So thank mm. you for that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. All right, uh, Michelle. Okay, so the poem I'm going to read is 
And I chose this one again, just I know I keep talking about Ultima and he wrote so much more. That's another thing that it's that story that you told Levi about how El Maestro, you know, got somebody to come and devise something for him so that he could write even through this injury, even through physical pain. And um, I deeply appreciate just how how he really how committed he was to the craft, how prolific. Um, so here's um, Alusema, and for me, it just conjures back to Ultima, who knew how to, who had relationships with all of the herbs, um, the land, and everything in it. Um, and I picture him kind of, you know, thanking the Alusema as he's, as he's cutting it. Alusema for Gloria. Flor de Semana Santa, flor de pasión, alas blancas. Alas da angelito, corazón amarillo. Alucema, Alucema, hija de tierra santa, corazón de primavera. Alas blancas, recuerdas mi pasión. Vientos calorosos, pasión, pasión. Murió el profeta, días y noches de pasión. Se levantó el hombre de su tumba nocturna, besó las alas de su amada. En las calles, las mujeres lloran y se van. Alucema, flor de primavera, beso tus alas blancas, pasión de los días. Beso los labios de mi amada. Mujer, Alucema, pasión de primavera. Beautiful. Thank you, Michelle, for um, reciting one of his poems in Spanish. Uh, just the beauty of the language and the imagery. Thank you so very much for that. Yeah, he has a few that are bilingual. Or he'll have the English and Spanish side by side, but that's what I appreciated about this one. Of, of just, um, I tell people, even if you don't speak the language, if you don't understand the literal meaning of the words, just enjoy the music of it. That alusema, alusema, flor de pasión, alusema, alusema. There's a, um, there's a music to it that you can appreciate even if you if you don't know the literal meaning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so beautiful to, to feel, not just here, but to feel. Thank you. Damien, I'd love to invite you now to share the poem that you want to share with all of us. Oh, yeah. It's been such an honor to participate tonight. And the poem that I picked is El Corrido de Billy the Kid, because I grew up watching cowboy movies when I was a kid and my grandparents loved the westerns and Young Guns came out when I was a little boy and that was one of the first movies that we owned in my home and I watched it all throughout my life and then when I took uh, 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 Dr. Uh, uh, Vizcaino's uh, uh, Southwest film class and uh, Dr. Aleman's classes as well I remember watching it and thinking this is the that movie prepared me for my college education. I love it. And so um, this piece here is in a little bit of um, uh, Spanglish, which I also love because my grandparents, it's just the language that was in my home. And I love it so much. So here is Rodolfo Anaya's El Corrido de Billy the Kid. Fue una noche oscura y triste en el pueblo de Fort Sumner. Cuando el sheriff Pat Garrett, a Billy the Kid mató, a Billy the Kid mató. 1800 
81, presenta lo tengo yo. Cuando en la casa de Pedro Maxwell, no más dos tiros le dio, no más dos tiros le dio. Vuela, vuela palomita a los pueblos de Río Pecos. Cuéntale las morenitas que ya su Billy murió, que ya su Billy murió. Ay, qué cobarde el Pat Garrett, ni chanza a Billy le dio. En los brazos de su amada, ahí mismo la mató, ahí mismo lo mató. Ay, qué tristeza me da ver a Rosita llorando y el pobre Billy en sus brazos, con su sangre derramando, con su sangre derramando. Vuela, vuela palomita a los pueblos de Río Pecos. Cuéntale a las morenitas que ya su Billy murió, que ya su Billy murió. Thank you. Thank you, Damien. I got goosebumps with the first repetition. It's so cool that structure, the way that he wrote it, mm -hmm. and that is a very um, traditional uh, uh, repetitive line, which is, you know, essential yeah. to the corrido form um, as, mm -hmm. as poetry and literature. I love it. Mm -hmm. So much from El Maestro Rodolfo Anaya. Just so much. Uh, connection to the land, connection to love, connection to community, connection, again, um, in every one of the poems that you chose uh, is what I'm hearing and, and feeling over and over again. And one of my last questions to each of you. So now you've read his poetry. Levi, you spoke a little bit earlier about how you almost called him this morning as you thought about our time together. And by reading this, his work, by bringing forth his words, we've invoked his spirit. And now I'd like to invite you to share with us, what is your message to El Maestro Rodolfo Anaya? What do you wanna to say to him? And for this round of questions, I'm actually going to bring in Dr. Melina Vizcaino Aleman because uh, Melina has worked, worked with him. And I want to give you the opportunity um, to share with us what your message to Rudy, you and I would be. Um, uh, that's a tall charge, <laughs> but I think that what I would say to Rudy is at this point, he can put his feet up and rest and let us do the work of remembering and honoring and recognizing not just his legacy and his words, but the community that he wanted to shine a light on all throughout his career. Um, so I feel like during his lifetime, I did not do enough. Um, and so I kind of feel like I'm at a loss and at a lack and um, I get very emotional uh, more so than I even want to, you know, because I think there's just so much that I feel like I didn't do that I feel like I need to continue to do. And I that would be my message to Mr. Anaya is that I will continue his struggle, his fight and just uh, continue the kind of care for the community that he had 
and my capacity as far as I can can stretch, which is not nearly as much as he did. Um, but that would be something that I want to say to him. Mm, thank you for that. Thank you. If you could speak to the spirit of Rodolfo Anaya, what's your message to him? Wow, that's such a powerful question. I would just want to say thank you. Like, thank you for the gifts that you left us with. Thank you for giving us a roadmap so that we can write our own stories and for encouraging and empowering us to write stories as well. Like the work that he did, it's not, it's so inviting. It's just like what I was describing about those poets. It's not like you can never write anything like this. It's just like, tell me your stories and write something like this too. So I would just want to give gratitude. Thank you. Then we'll go to Hakeem, Levi, Michelle, and Damien. What is your message to the spirit of Rudy and Aya? You, you know, what I'd like to say to Mr. Anaya is that, um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take the charge to continue to, to authentically tell stories in color, like, you know, and, uh, and I feel like the, there's a quote, I, you know, I was doing my homework prior to, the, to us meeting today, and I got to see two interviews that, that Mr. Anaya did in 2010 with NEA, and then in 2012 with a group called Words on, on a Wire. Um, and this quote stuck out to me, so I just want to share it and, and, and essentially just say like what I said earlier, like my, my, my gratitude is that Mr. and I gave us permission to tell stories in color, in language, in, uh, in multiple languages, like just and make that okay. And uh, what was interesting about this interview is that he was, you know, his typical deferent self when, you know, they were giving him this like you essentially, you know, at 72, ushered in this Chicano literary movement. He was like, there were other writers. He's like, you know, my book did good, but there were other writers doing it. Like I wasn't, I wasn't out here on an island. I was in a community of writers that were doing this work. And, and mine just kind of took off after a whole bunch of New York publishers told me no, and a Berkeley publisher told me yes. Um, but, but he then said this when the question was, what was it like to be one of the few? He said, well, it was difficult. As you say, we had no models. I had read the American writers, the novelists, you know, the Hemingways, the Faulkners, and Thomas Wolfe, and appreciated all of them. But I couldn't write like that. And so I had to change my course, my creativity. It all had to go back to the people and come out of them. What were their rhythms? What is that subject matter? How important is family and church and tradition? And then that whole substratum of mythology, you know, our cuentos. Those couldn't be in a Hemingway novel. That's not him and that's not me. So once I tapped what I think is the raices, the roots of the culture, then that helped me to get this sense that I can create for myself. And then the story comes out. You might say in a new way, in a fresh way, the guides have to be the people themselves, a community. And for me, that was like, okay, so you're not like trying to will your pen. You are actually like, like if, you, if you're quiet enough, the stories will emerge and your, and, and your job is to help them, you know, get to the ears, right? Get to the eyes and to the ears. And so um, if that's my charge for Mr. Nye, I'm happy to, I'm happy to do my best to try to, to, to make him proud. Beautiful message. Thank you. Levi. No. So uh, Melina, uh, what you said about, uh, you know, your message to Rodolfo is, you know, it's okay now put your feet up. This guy's um, really beautiful one of the last conversations that I did have with him, 
he was telling me about how he just, that was it. Yeah, no mas. He, that was it. He wasn't going to write anymore. And he felt good about it. And uh, that had come to him because he was having a conversation with Nora, his housekeeper. And, uh, and she told him, you know what, Rudy, you don't have to write any longer. Si no quieres, you don't have to. You've written for the world already. They've got your books. They've got your stories. If you don't want to write any longer, don't feel like you have to. And he took that in and he's like, I don't have to write anymore if I don't want to. And so he felt good and he felt fine about that. Um, I'm not really somebody that's really good about messages or what I would say because I really just, I speak in poems and I speak in poetry. That's kind of like really been my language. So I think what I would do is I would read him a poem. I would recite a poem to him. Um, and I would do this poem, Los Heroes. Los guachábamos cuando pasaban, echando jumito azul en sus ramplas aplanadas como ranas de ojelata. Eran en los días de los heroes, cuando había heroes, turiqueando en lengua mocha y risa torcida, cubole. Ahora nomás pasan los recuerdos uno tras del otro y mi corazón baila. Bendición, bendición es estar contento. Señor, Señor, gracias, gracias por todo. Yes, amen to that. <laughs> Levi, poetry is message, and it always has been for you. And um, thank you for that beautiful message to El Maestro. To El Héroe. Thank you. And Michelle. What I would like to offer to, um, um, to Rodolfo Anaya's spirit is um, just a deep sense of gratitude. Um, you think of these kind of writers and artists who, um, who reflect us back to ourselves. So um, I have a poem about uh, Luis Jimenez and his sculpture, El Mesteño at the Denver airport. And I, th I think of when he died, I remembered listening to um, um, Cecilia Portal actually on the on KUNM. And she said, he made us big. He made us big, outlandish, garish, like kind of larger than life. And I, so I think of him as one weight and Rodolfo Anaya as, as this counterweight of um, um, this sense that um, that the lens could be really sharply focused on on a group of people and you get the sense that he he just like walked alongside like accompanied and paid attention um that he's like antonio like this little boy just taking everything in observing and then offering it back and um i'm so i'm so grateful to him for that quiet accompaniment and um and just the steady work the steadiness of of his work and i hope that um i hope he's resting well and um yeah that's i just hope he's resting well and and knows um what he's left us and um and i can tell from the folks on this zoom and so many other people i've talked to that we take um we take what he's offered us very seriously 
and where I think everyone on this Zoom is is really invested in that work again of accompanying whether we're making folks big and garish and and and, and I mean garish and outlandish in the best way, right? Larger than life and huge, or we're just quietly scribing <laughs> and offering it back. Um, what a gift to have had him as long as we did. Yeah. What a gift. Thank you, Michelle. Damien, I'd love to hear from you your message to El Maestro, the maestro that you followed from La Washa to Albuquerque High to UNM back to Albuquerque High. Yes. And it's just been, I, I've been thinking about Rudolfo a lot because um, I am uh, now working at Albuquerque High again. I'm the Dean of Students Academic Intervention, and I work with a lot of the students who come from our communities and our neighborhoods um, who are struggling. And a lot of the students have sort of found an identity in Rudolfo's work through a lot of the uh, instructors at Albuquerque High School. In particular, I want to give a shout out to uh, Gary Gutierrez, who teaches in the classroom next to me, because he always has his students read Bless Mi Ultima, as well as his young uh, uh, other short stories, and that, that the younger people in this younger generation are still being impacted and inspired by your work, Anaya, and it's just uh, amazing. And so it's it's generational inspiration, and still, you know, students of this era are finding that part of themselves within his work, and that's beautiful that that legacy is continuing on. And also, I'm reminded of his book, uh, Chicano in China, that is also very relevant to this current day and age in particular, where um, I really love his reflections on seeing the similarities between the Chicano culture and that within the, the citizens of China when he had visited out there, that the struggles of the indigenous peoples, the struggles of working peoples and seeing the family units, the strong family units that are what bind and connect our people to all of the indigenous peoples of the world. And that to me, that solidarity, that internationalism and that spirit is very important and will continue on. And I'm very grateful to have got the chance to have met him and read his work and just try to continue in walking in his footsteps and standing on his shoulders as I pursue my career further on as a writer and poet. Mm, thank you, Damien. So we're toward the end of our time together for this tribute. And um, I think I'd like to offer my own message to this maestro, Rodolfo Naya. I think about what infiniteness means and your spirit. So from my own belief system, you're here, you were here as a spirit embodied as a Chicano, Nuevo Mexicano, who fell in love with the land and the water. And you were so in love with it that you had to write about it in various ways. And you knew how important healing is to our survival, to us being resilient. And you gifted us all of that. And now in your leaving the physical, 
your infiniteness is clearly alive. And so I offer to you just deep gratitude. And I offer to each of you who joined today, who took your time, your words, your power, your beauty, your spirit to gift us this evening. Thank you. So thank you so much to Tanea Winder, Hakeem Bellamy, Levi Romero, Michelle Otero, Damien Flores, and to Doctora Melina Vizcaino Aleman for the work of the English department, for the generosity of the spoken word hour to allow us to be together in this way. I thank each of you. Del merito de mi corazón. And what an honor and a privilege for me to be able to sit with you, to listen, to feel the magic and the healing that you've given to our community this evening. Milimas gracias. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you all. This has been great. It's been church for me. Appreciate it. It's been great breaking word with you, all of you. This evening's special edition of Generation Justice and the Spoken Word Hour was produced by Generation Justice, myself, Roberta Rael, Barbara Ramirez, and Roman Garcia, with production assistance by Kyle Gonzalez. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, with additional funding from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and of course, all of you who contribute to our work. I am Roberta Rael, and it has been such a pleasure and an honor to be with you this evening. Bendiciones. <laughs>